You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read, uh, look at the first seven verses today. We're going to really be focused on verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And when, I, when Jim asked me to do this, I thought of a really good topic, and then uh, Jim very quickly stole that topic from me. So I had to choose another one. And so I, I chose this, and this I'm actually glad I did. This has been rolling around in my head for, for quite a while. I, we uh, did this with the youth some time ago. And this last Wednesday, I asked them if they remembered it. I said, remember when we did 1 Timothy 1.5, back where we met in October at Lynn Moore's house? And they all said, oh, Lynn Moore's house was so nice. I remember Lynn Moore's house. <laughs> it was so warm, and she had the tree. I said, yeah, remember the lesson? Right? Uh, no, they didn't. <laughs> so I get another crack at them today. So you better listen this time. One of them afterwards said, no, I really did. No, I just... I just uh, didn't say it. So what we're going to see today in this scripture, and first of all, this has been really a powerful scripture to me. It's really kind of why I wanted to preach on it. It's one of those that has it's helped me to make those corrections, those course corrections that, that were necessary and, and remain necessary. And so I hope that the Holy Spirit does that for you as well uh, this morning as we go through it. What we're going to see is that the goal of scriptural understanding, the, script, the goal of learning from God's word is love. And that that love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, from verse 5. But before we really get into the passage, uh, there's a couple things I need to do. One is to set up an assumption that I think is really critical to understanding this passage or really critical to understanding anything, any passage or anything. So we want to make sure that we have that. It's assumed as we get to this passage. So I want to make sure that we all have that. I don't want to uh, have any lack of clarity because we're not all on the same page when it comes to that. I'm going to tell you the meaning of life. That's not bad, huh, for a backup guy? You're going to get the meaning of life? That's pretty good. Uh, hopefully this is nothing new. Right? If It's uh, just something to be reminded of and to have in our head as we approach this passage. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? What's the point of, of worship? What's the purpose of creation? Why do we live? Why do we act? Why do we work? Why do we have families? Uh, what's the purpose of all of this stuff that goes on? Why are we here? Why am I preaching? And why are you, some of you, listening? Uh, why is that happening? I'm, I'm not, in other words, what's the purpose, right? What's the point? And I'm not going to embark on 40 days of purpose. I'm not going to do anything like that. But I think the answer to that question is important. And it's one that is often repeated in Scripture. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses that have to do with that, that are outside of 1 Timothy. You don't have to flip there. You certainly can, but I'm going to go through these uh, fairly quickly. You're going to know these verses, too. These are favorites. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Some of you have this memorized. Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a pretty good clue about what it's all about, right? Another one's Colossians 1.16. This is my current favorite verse. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Catch that last part. All things have been created through him and for him. That's, you put those things together. All things are created for him. All that we do is to be done for God's glory. That's the point. That's the purpose of everything. So if you want to know the meaning of life, the purpose of everything, it's the glory of God. That's why the creation exists as it does, even in its sin-cursed form. We know Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why the creation is as it is. Everything that we do is for the glory of God, or should be for the glory of God. So if we ask the question, what's the point? I think the answer to that is clear. The point is the glory of God. The ultimate point of all that we do is that God might be glorified. He might be further esteemed. He might be understood to be who he is and what he is, the perfect one. And that's the point. All right, so keep that point in your mind. Uh, hopefully not just for today and for this passage. Now, the hardest part about doing one message is, well, there's a couple hard parts. Uh, you guys can attest to this. Some of you guys that have done this recently, Brian and Tim. There's two things. One is cutting stuff out. Right, because you have to do, you can't just do something very narrow where you've got all the context that's been built in front of you and you're gonna, you know you're gonna do more messages later. So what do you, how do you do it? What do you cut out? So I cut out a lot of really important stuff, which that pains me, but I did. But I'm not gonna be short anyway, so just so you know that. So, the second hard part is establishing context. You have to establish context, and so that takes up half your message. So I'm gonna do kind of a poor job of establishing context so I can do a good job of the actual meat of the message. So we're going to do some some of the context of 1 Timothy. And we're going to do that by, as we kind of go through it. So open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a, be- a beautiful greeting. See a couple things from there. First of all, the book was written by Paul. That's about all I'm going to say about Paul. Hopefully you know enough about Paul. And it was written to Timothy. You may not know enough about Timothy. Timothy is a guy we don't give quite enough attention to. Uh, the history with Paul and Timothy. Paul met Timothy in Lystra when he was going through on his first missionary journey. He probably led Timothy to the Lord, where he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Calling him his child seems to indicate that he had something to do with his, his coming to Christ. It looks like Paul also led Timothy's mother and grandmother to Christ when he went through Lystra the first time. A lot of interesting stuff happened during that, so it was a very public thing, and so certainly those people would have known that Paul had come through and had heard from him. When Paul came back through on his second missionary journey, he took Timothy along with him. And then Timothy served with Paul very capably and effectively throughout uh, the rest of Paul's ministry. He was with Paul in Rome during his imprisonment, Timothy's mentioned often in Paul's letters, he's mentioned in, get this, he's mentioned in 12 New Testament books. Did you know that? That's a lot of New Testament books to be mentioned in. That's a pretty cool honor. He's mentioned in 12 books. I won't list them for you. You can trust me on that. He's mentioned by three authors, Paul, Luke, and also whoever wrote Hebrews. Now, if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, then he's mentioned by two. If you think Luke wrote Hebrews, he's mentioned by two. I don't think either one of those guys wrote Hebrews, so I say he was mentioned by three. Okay, Three authors, 12 books. Timothy was not just your average Joe. 
He was indispensable, instrumental in the spread of the gospel in the early church. Greatly used to God. He's one of the giants of the early church. We think of Peter and John and James, and, and rightly so. Timothy belongs in that in that group. He is a true giant of the early church. So what's the letter about? Let's continue on. Let's read verses uh, 3 through 7. It says, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men have straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You've got to love Paul. So we see from verse 3 that Paul and Timothy had together, together visited the church at Ephesus. So Timothy's at Ephesus uh, when he receives this letter. Then Timothy stayed at Ephesus. Paul left him behind. He went on to Macedonia. So here's Timothy, this young man, and he's, he's kind of stuck in Ephesus. First thing he's told to do, back in verse 3, is to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So there's, there's a lot of controversy about exactly what these strange doctrines will be. It's not all that important for what we're going, for the main point of this message, but I want you to kind of see what the scene is. So understand what we can understand about these strange doctrines from the word itself. We know they're strange, first of all. That doesn't tell us a lot, but we know that. We know that they're false, in other words. We know that they include something about myths, verse 4. There's some, some myths involved. Now, if you remember back to Acts, when Paul was in, in Ephesus, remember that? Remember what happened there? Remember great as Artemis of the Ephesians for hours and chanting that and they're because they thought that he was endangering their trade in idols to Artemis or Diana, the, the Greek goddess, the meteor that came down that was likely the statue of Artemis. You remember that? It's been a while since we did Acts, but there was a lot of Artemis or Diana worship there. There's a lot of Greek mythology, in other words, Greek and Roman mythology. But I don't think this has to do with that. As we go on later, we see conversation about the law and things like that. So it seems that this is Jewish mythology. And there was a Jewish mythology. There was a lot of it. There were a lot of books. You may have heard of some of these. The Book of Jubilees. The Book of Biblical Antiquities. It has a Latin name that I can't pronounce. The Book of Enoch. You've probably heard the Book of Enoch. The Assumption of Moses. Those two books, the Book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, are referred to in Jude. And so there was some truth in some of these books. There was also some falsehood. There was a lot of uh, just weird stories about the patriarchs in these, some, some of which were true and some of which were not. And it seems like they were trying to incorporate some of these myths into their Christianity and just going off the rails. So they had to pervert the gospel in order to fit all this stuff in. And what Timothy is going to have to tell them is, that's not how you do it. You take doctrine, take scripture as it is, take the truths of the word as they are, and you have to abandon all this stuff that you were maybe into before. They're also tied up in genealogies. We see that from verse 4. They were, they were uh, instructed not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. It may be these you know, genealogies. A lot of you guys, you might be into genealogies. right? They have that whole Ancestry.com and people are into that. This is going back to the Old Testament patriarchs and trying to establish these biological linkages between them and modern people and all the different patriarchs. 
And Paul says it's just meaningless. It may have been that, or it could have been actually in some of these books, they tried to establish genealogies of angels and spirit beings and categories of all these things. And that may be what was going on here. We don't know for sure. We know from verse 7 that they wanted to be teachers of the law, even though, as Paul said, they didn't even know what they were saying. They, they had no idea what they were talking about. But the fact that they want to be teachers of the law means that there was some Judaizing going on. Remember the Judaizers that wanted to make sure that you obeyed all the ceremonial dietary laws of the Old Testament in order to be saved? That's a heresy. It was addressed repeatedly. It's basically the point of the book of Galatians is to destroy that heresy. Uh, Remember the Jerusalem conference from Acts where they had to get together to decide what they were going to do about this? So this was a common problem in the church. And this, these heresies included some of that. We also know that there was asceticism involved, or self-denial. You have to turn forward a little bit to chapter 4 of First Timothy. And I'll just read you the first, uh, first five verses of First Timothy 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So we know that these liars were advocating celibacy, uh, probably Old Testament dietary restrictions. So there's all these things involved in the heresy. I don't know exactly what it is, but we know that all these things were involved. So as we go through that, one thing that ought to strike you about it is, well, we still hear that stuff today, right? There's nothing new about celibacy, right? There's nothing new about any of this. Every new heretic, right, every 21st century now heretic that comes up with some great new thing that everybody has to believe in, all of those things have so have been condemned so clearly 2,000 years ago by the apostles, by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, and yet they're still here today. It's one thing that struck me about this as I went through it. You could go through those things. The law, the, the abuse of the law. The, the mythologies, the genealogies, all of that stuff, and see adherents today that are still pursuing those heresies. So that's kind of the context. That's what Timothy's job was. Paul had already dealt with some of this. We, we find out in verse 20 of chapter 1 that Paul had actually kicked a couple guys out of the church already, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These, these guys were not just average Joes in the church either. It seems that they were leaders, probably elders in the church. And here's this young guy, Timothy, his job is to stop this from happening. He's to stop them from teaching this. And, and why? What's the big deal about it? Uh, one thing we see from verse 4, go to verse 4, these, give, these teachings were giving rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. That's the New American Standard. Uh, there's, the NIV has such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And I want to be clear about what that is. And this is going to tie to the first point about uh, everything being to the glory of God. The administration of God, which is by faith. That word that's translated administration is from the Greek ekonomia. And I, like Tim said a few weeks ago, I don't speak Greek either. 
so whatever I just said is probably wrong. But it looks like it should be pronounced economia. It's from where we get our word economy. It's translated here as administration. It's often translated as plan or stewardship. It means household management, like a household steward might do. Okay? Uh, a general management. Alright? So it can be translated administration or plan. You could, re- you could translate it as the plan of God as it pertains to faith. So the plan of God as it pertains to faith, which would simply be the gospel. So what he's saying is these hours and days that are meticulously spent parsing genealogies and lists, minutia of the law, they just promote controversy. They don't promote the true purpose and goal of all things, which is the glory of God, the advancement of God's glory, of God's plan to his glory. It doesn't, the plan of God or the, the, God, the glory of God is primarily expanded through the propagation of the gospel but also through proper worship, right? study of any part of God's word, uh, strong families, right? all of those things that, that God has put into plan in the things that from his word he tells us this is how things are to operate. Anything that goes along with that is to God's glory. Anything that is true about God, anything we say that is true about God is to his glory because God is perfect. Anything additional we know about God or we come to learn about God causes us to glorify him further. And anything false that is said about God, by definition, reduces his glory. God is perfect in glory. So if anything that is said about him is false, that reduces the glory, the esteem in which he's held by his creation. And that's not to be. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. It's got to stop because this does not promote the administration of God, which is by faith, the glory of God. Now, I don't know how much time it would take to do these genealogies. I know some people, some of you guys spend a lot of time on your own genealogies, right? Now we have these, there's tools today that help those things go faster. But if you're trying to do genealogies of angels and spirits, it's going to take a long time, isn't it? I mean, there's no like Bureau of Gift Certificates or whatever that would be called that would have these things. So basically you're making it all up. You're spending a lot of time here parsing this stuff. Uh, Jim talked a few Sundays ago about the minutia of the law. Remember the paralytic couldn't pick up his mat unless it was a full moon and a star and a thing. And, the, and I don't even remember all that. He went on for a long time. On purpose, he did it. Yeah, he went on for a long time. So you imagine how much time it takes to parse all that stuff out? Even if it weren't false, and it, and it is, these doctrines are false. But even if they weren't, it's a colossal waste of time. And time is precious. We each have the same amount of time when we get up in the morning. We have 24 hours. We all have the same amount of time. And I'm amazed by some people who just don't have time to do things, but other people do. I don't understand that. Why do some people have time and other people don't? Well, it must be that some people are wasting time, right? Or, Or using their time in some other way. In less important ways. Ways that don't directly give him glory. doesn't mean we can't spend our time enjoying things. That gives God glory as well. Enjoying God's gifts and being grateful for those, sure, that gives him glory. But wasting time, especially on something that's completely false, that detracts from his glory, ought not to be done. So in verse 5, we get a contrast. Paul gives Timothy this great contrast. And I love verse 5. That's where we're really focused. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
See, their instruction is, is spent on speculation and false stuff, and it detracts from the glory of God. It doesn't further the administration of God. But Paul says our instruction, and I take that to mean apostolic instruction, true instruction, biblical instruction. So preaching, teaching, anything, your own personal Bible study, leading your family in devotions, listening to the word, any of that is biblical instruction. The goal of that is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the verse you want to make sure you remember. Very clear contrast. Okay, now, I spent several minutes at the beginning talking about the glory of God and how everything is supposed to be the glory of God. That's the goal of everything. That's the purpose of everything. But now I say that the goal of our instruction, of biblical instruction, is love. Well, which is it? You can't have it both ways. Either the goal of everything is the glory of God or the goal of something is love. Well, it's pretty simple to reconcile those two, isn't it? The only way that we can glorify God is through loving action, through love. That is how we glorify God, is through love. Properly understood, biblical Christian love glorifies God. And it's really the only thing that does. The ultimate final purpose of any activity is the glory of God. But how do we glorify God? As we read and study our word, how do we glorify God through that? By love. Love to God. Love of other people, love of our spouse, strong families, love of the lost, sharing the gospel, all to the glory of God. So that's why the goal of our instruction is love. Now something else I want to be really clear about. The the love that he talks about here in in verse 5 has some prerequisites. It has some things out of which it flows. There's three of them. So in order to display this love that's a goal of biblical instruction, You have to have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So that love flows from those things. Understand that. This isn't a list of four things. It's a list of one thing with three prerequisites. It's about love, and love flows from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. The ESV, if anybody has an ESV, it puts it clearly. It's the aim of our charge, or the goal of our instruction, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That issues from. Uh, the NIV says, which comes from. So that's the idea. It flows out of these things. I grew up in southern Idaho. Anybody grew up in southern Idaho? Any southern Idahoans? There's one. Me and Jamie are the only southern Idahoans. So he's the only guy here that knows what a borrow pit is. So we speak a special language. Oh, Ron knows what a borrow pit is. Uh, I won't tell you what a borrow pit is. You have to figure that out. But we do a lot of irrigation down in southern Idaho because there's there's a there's a big river, but there's no other water. Water doesn't come from the sky all that much. So we have to take it out of the river. There's a lot of irrigation. And when I was a kid, we had uh, there was a ditch and there were gates on it. Right? And you would screw the big giant wheel, and it would close the gate or open the gate. And it wasn't our gate, so we weren't supposed to mess with it. So I'll, you can figure out how that probably went, but so it's it's they're fun, right? So imagine that there are three gates; they all have to be open for the water to flow. That's the idea here. All three of these things have to be green light, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, for you to demonstrate Christian love. These things are necessary. That's the extent of my illustrations, I think, for today. So the goal of biblical instruction is love. I want to make sure, first of all, we understand what love is. 
And some of you are going, he's not going to preach 1 Corinthians 13 again, is he? Remember I talked, uh, you probably don't remember. <laughs> I did a whole thing of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm, I'm going to read you a few verses out of that, but just as a kind of a reminder. Uh, if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, but you don't remember that I preached it, that's, the, that's perfect. We'll go with that. So I want to read you the first three verses. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And one of the things that I wanted to get across when I, when I preached that message was the preeminence of love. That's what Paul's point is in the first part of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the greatest thing in the world. When I was preparing for that message, uh, I, I found this little pamphlet here. So I'm holding this. And it's called The Greatest Thing in the World. That's what I like about it, really, is the title. But it's, it's a really neat uh, little exposition. It's from a man called Henry Drummond, who was an associate of Moody's. And he, uh, Moody was at a party, you know, a dinner party, and being moody, somebody said, hey, Moody, give us a devotional. And he said, I'm too tired. So Drummond, will you give a devotional? And Drummond did this thing on 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know if that's how it really went. I'm, that's a dramatization. But Drummond gave this little thing on 1 Corinthians 13. It's a little exposition. And it's really beautiful. And Moody said, we got to write that down and make it available. So I got this for two bucks on Amazon.com. I would recommend it. Henry Drummond, the greatest thing in the world. Love is the greatest thing in the world. There's just nothing higher in this world. It's above everything else. It'll outlast everything else. Uh, so just briefly, what is it? Is it a warm feeling or a romantic thing? No. Oh, no. A warm feeling can accompany love, biblical love, but it's not that. Is it sacrifice? So the teens are going, yeah, because I did, I would define it as sacrifice. But it's not just sacrifice. What Paul said, he says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. It's not just a sacrifice either. I could sacrifice all day long if it's not done with the right attitude. It's not loving. So if you're looking for a definition of love, the best thing to do is go back and read 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll look at a little bit of that again here in a second. But love is a genuine willingness or determination to do good for its object, no matter the cost. It's a humbling of oneself. It's putting others above yourself sincerely in your mind and acting on that determination. It's honestly believing that other people deserve something more than you do and acting on that determination. It's, it flows from an understanding of our spiritual condition. So here's how Paul defines it. Love is patient. Love is kind. is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So love requires sacrifice, but it's willing determined sacrifice. Understand also, it's the identifying mark of the Christian. This is from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's the positive part of it. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But listen to this part. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
Love defines us from the point of view of character, defines the Christian. So it's the point, it's the goal of instruction, is that kind of love. This is what what, uh, Paul wanted Timothy to fan into flames in the church at Ephesus, is this sort of love. It's not what the phony teachers had in mind as their goal, but it is the goal of biblical instruction. It has to be the point. So the other three elements listed are prerequisites, and I want to look at those uh, just quickly. Love is from a pure heart. That's the first prerequisite listed. A pure heart, what that means, it's not exactly the same as a good conscience, which is next. So you think about how you might divide those up. They're close, and Paul uses them together a lot, a pure heart and a good conscience. But we know that love is necessary for God's glory. A pure heart is necessary for love. So we know we need to have a pure heart. It's important that we understand what it is. And the Old Testament gives us a lot of, in the Psalms, it gives you a lot of references to a pure heart. And if you really want to go back and look at those, um, there's, a, there's a lot of them help you clarify this. I'm just going to look at one. This is from Psalm 24. It says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So this gives us some... First of all, we sing a song on this. I will not sing it for you. Okay? I was planning to, but since we started a little late, I'm going to cut that part out. I know, what a blessing. <laughs> give us pure hearts, give us clean hands. That's the what we sing. We see, and we see the elements of a pure heart in this psalm. It's what I like. It says, no falsehood. He does not has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. It's the idea of not carrying around any sort of moral hypocrisy, of thinking that sin is okay, that I'm okay, that I, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really too worried about sin. Sin's not that big a deal. Uh, I can do this, and I, you know, I can still go to church. I can still read my Bible, and that kind of thing. This is a heart, and instead, is focused on the things of God. It's focused on righteousness, holiness, service. It makes war with sin. This is a heart that is making war with sin from day to day. It's that the way Paul talked about it in Romans 7. Remember how he's just making war. He says, "What am I going to do?" And he ends up with, "Thanks be to God for someday He's going to rescue him to take him out of this war that he's in against sin." But that's that's the that's a pure heart, a heart that wars against sin, that hates your sin, your own sin, hates it, does everything it can to avoid it. That's a pure heart. And love requires a pure heart. Love is also from a good conscience. Love requires a good conscience. A conscience, you, you probably all know what that means. It just literally means with knowledge. It's internal knowledge that we have of God's holy requirements. Romans 2 talks about the law of God written on our hearts. That's the conscience. It's an understanding of our moral condition. Everybody has this, not just believers. We, everybody has a conscience. Everybody understands what sin is, in a sense. Everybody knows when they sin or when they're con- contemplating sin. Now, the conscience can be dulled and, and all of that, but everybody has one. For an unbeliever, when they say that they feel guilty, they feel guilty. Why? Because they are guilty. Right? That sin has just piled up another judgment against me. I'll tell you about when I was an unbeliever. I was saved at age 18. So I, I remember, even though now, yeah, it's a long time ago. I can still remember it, Megan. 
So <laughs> I, was, I was 18. I remember what it was like before I was saved. When I would sin or when I would contemplate a sin, I would feel guilty. I knew some things without knowing much of anything, right, from the scripture. I knew some things. I knew just from creation, I knew that there was a God. And everybody knows that. You'd have to be, everybody knows it. It's just ridiculous to think otherwise. I knew there was a God. What did I know about him? I knew he was powerful. He created everything. I got that. And I had a sense that he was good and that he wasn't pleased with me. I knew that. And I knew when I sinned that something bad was going to happen. Now, I probably wouldn't have called it sin. I didn't know who the judge was. I didn't know that, but I knew that this was going to happen. If you would have, if we would have talked about that, I would have said, yeah, I just feel bad. I feel guilty. Well, why do you feel guilty unless you are guilty? I was guilty, and I knew it. I didn't, you know, know exactly what was to come, but, but I knew I was guilty. That's my conscience. It's warning me. What a grace of God the conscience is. To people who hate God, He gives them a warning of judgment to come. What a grace. Now, as a believer, my conscience is still there. It still warns me of sin. It still tells me, don't do this thing. It's a sin against God. Okay? But now, sin, and i got to be real clear about this and real careful because I don't want to give a wrong impression, but sin in the, in, in the life, the mind of a believer, the conscience does not produce guilt as a result of sin in, in a believer. Because you're no longer guilty. Okay? If you sin now, you may feel shame. You may feel uh, disgust at your sin. Sorrow. But what you don't feel anymore is guilt. Because you're not guilty. Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. He took the burden of that sin. I'm not guilty anymore. Praise the Lord. That's what a good conscience does. If if you look, it does a couple things. If you are looking back at your moral life, say the last few years, few months, few weeks, few days, few minutes, you're all going to see some sin in that. If you don't see sin in that at all, we got to go to First John and talk about that. You're going to see some sin in that, right? So what does that do to you? What does your conscience tell you as you do that? A good conscience, a good here means something beneficial, something that provides some benefit to you. So what does a good conscience do? I think it's going to do two things. I've said about a hundred times now that it's going to do two things. So you're like, well, you just get to the two things. The two things are, number one, as you look back at that and you say, look, I sinned. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I did that. I am a child of God and I did that. It produces... It produces a strong emotion. Call it shame. Call it hatred of sin, if you want. I want to make war with that. I don't want to do that anymore. Right? I'm going to, I'll do whatever I have to. I'll go talk to somebody about this, see if they can, they can help me to avoid this, help me understand why I do this. I'm going to study the scripture. I'm going to pray my heart out. I'm going to talk to my spouse. I'm going to, I'm going to fight this thing. It produces that. Okay? And it should do that. And in that process, it should remind you why you needed a Savior and cause you to praise the Lord. Right, that's what you end up with. Yes, I did that. Praise God I have a Savior now. 
That's why I needed a Savior. I see that again. Here's another reminder of why I needed a Savior. Why I still do. It should do that. But it also, look, if you're a believer and you've been a believer for any length of time, it, it should also show you some progress. You should see some progress. You should see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You should see that. If it looks like you're not going to have a happy ending to this story, you know, you want to examine that. You don't want to just let that pass by. There should be some growth, some sanctification. The last part, love flows from a sincere faith. The word for sincere, again, I can't say this right, but anupakritos. And the and means not. So I got that part. Upakritos. Does that sound like a word that we know? Upakritos? Sounds like an English word. Upakritos. Hypocrite. That's all it means. Hypocritical. So this is sincere means not hypocritical. It means true, not phony. It means real. Sincere. When Paul says that Timothy says true son in the faith, it's the same idea. True. Not hypocritical, not false, not phony, but true. Sincere faith. Simply put, this is just a saving faith, a genuine, divine, saving faith. You have to be saved. You have to be a Christian. You have to be regenerated. And I know even in this body that there are some who are not. If you don't have a sincere faith, a genuine, saving faith, the rest of this that the verse calls for is not, it doesn't, it's not going to work. You have to have a sincere faith. See, the love, that determined willingness to sacrifice for others, it can only come from genuine faith. Only the Holy Spirit can empower us to put ourselves in a lowly position for the sake of other people. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And only the Holy Spirit can give us the power to do that. Only the person that has been touched by perfect love can demonstrate this sort of love. I want to contemplate the love of Christ for a minute, just for a minute. I'd rather We're going to do it for 10,000 years together or 10 billion years together. So we'll just spend a little, maybe a minute doing it right now. The love of Christ. What did he do that's such a big deal? <laughs> Where did he start? Okay, He was in heaven. Everything's perfect there. He's in perfect fellowship with his Father. Everything's exactly as he desires. Everything is perfect and wonderful. And he decides, in his own will, to become born as a human baby, Naked, weak, helpless, in a manger, a feeding trough in Bethlehem. Feeding trough. The God of all creation humbles himself to that degree. And that's just the beginning. As we were going through John with Jim in the morning, I'm struck by people contradicting the Lord. Think about that. People telling him he's wrong. How stupid, right? And yet he doesn't just, with a thought, cause all to cease to exist and start over. No, he's loving. That's love. That's humility. It gets worse, right? They, they not only contradict him, they mock him, they beat him, they torture him. And they hang him on a cross. Horrible. And at any moment in time, a mere thought erases it all. He doesn't do it. That's love. That's perfect love. No one's ever loved like that. No one could ever love like that. Somebody who hasn't understood that fully, embraced that love, you can't offer up Christian, humble Christian love. So you have to have a sincere faith. 
So the applications, I think, are fairly obvious, but just in case they're not. So first, do you have a pure heart? Do you have a righteous and godly mind? Is it focused on the right things, the things of God? Honestly. Second, how's your conscience? When you, when you look back on your moral life, does it affirm your faith? Does your conscience affirm your faith? Are you growing in righteousness? When you look at your moral life, are you drawn to the Savior? And third, do you have a sincere faith? Is your faith genuine? Is it, is it a life-changing faith? Is it all-encompassing total dependence on Jesus Christ? I, I pray that it is. But ultimately, are you loving? Do you happily, willingly sacrifice for the people? Or are you somebody who's known for standing up for your rights? You don't take any guff. Are you humble? Can you assume the best in people? Nobody here is perfect, right? Uh, Talon was one time during an Awana lesson, but I don't think he is anymore. Are you still perfect? No. (laughs) But we need to see progress, right? That's the point of a, a good conscience, sincere faith. The glory of God is the point of everything, and God is glorified through authentic Christian love. And that love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are just, uh, anytime we contemplate your love, we are overwhelmed by it. That you would do that for us is beyond comprehension. All that you put up with here. It gives us a great example of love. I can put up with things, Lord, given what you did for me. Uh, there's just nothing that I could ever complain about. And Father, I pray for all those that are here that they would be examining their hearts and their minds and uh, their faith. They make sure they have a sincere faith, that their conscience is good, that it affirms their salvation, that their heart is pure and focused on the right things. We pray this for, in your sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.